Good afternoon. Today we're joined uh, live from rural Kenya by Jasper Machogo, who's a farmer and an agricultural engineer. For extra authenticity, uh, he's organised his chickens to be chirping away in the background. Um, and uh, he's speaking from uh, his farm in the village of Kisi. Now, his pinned tweet reads as follows on Twitter. Good morning from Kisi, Kenya. What is it like to live here without fossil fuels? Some refer to it as sustainable. I agree. Only if its definition changes to break your back if you want to eat, even though you'll be poor forever. And there's a diet, there's a there's a video uh, of Jasper weeding his um, maize crop by hand. And indeed it does look like back-breaking work. Uh, this um, is obviously takes us to areas of huge interest the world over and uh, the drive for sustainable agriculture. And this is a wonderful opportunity to actually speak to someone who is living that sustainable dream but sees its limitations, its shortfalls, and wishes to choose a different way forward. Jasper, uh, welcome. How are you today? I'm all good. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. If we could start with a little bit of your personal background. Um, you're speaking out on, on matters relating to climate and agriculture and farming. Uh, could you take us through uh, your background in these areas and how you, how you came to hold the views uh, that you, you do at present? Okay, so I'm Jasper Machogu from Kisi, Kenya. I'm uh, an agricultural engineer. I hold a bachelor's degree in agricultural engineering from Egerton University, one of the biggest uh, universities in, in Kenya in agriculture. I'm also a professor fuel advocate in Africa, uh, as well as a farmer. Like, I'm preaching what I'm doing. Um, uh, currently in Kisi, uh, most people um, depend they 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 depend on their muscle power so you have to eat so that your muscle has got energy so that you can do work uh, various tasks around the farm so back in 20 back in university actually uh because i i graduated in 2018 december before that i was a greenpeace member even after like immediately after that so i was a greenpeace member and another group called let's do it kenya uh the two are environmental conservation um, organizations so we used to organize uh like you were a group of young people who cared about the environment so much and we've like personally i felt so much bitter because when i looked at the environment and what we were doing to it especially when it came to plastics i felt really bad so i wanted to make a difference i wanted to be the change so in one of the uh events after university um I think it dawned on me that, like I had some questions because I realized that in the slums, uh, that's where we found more plastics and more litter. Like people didn't care much about the environment because they had far bigger problems. So upon sitting down and like, I wanted to be a stronger Greenpeace member. Like I wanted to be very active. I wanted to, yeah. So in the process, uh, I 
I went looking for what Greenpeace was all about, and I realized that Greenpeace was uh, co-founded by one fella called uh, Dr. Patrick Moore, and uh, he was no longer a Greenpeace member. And that caught me like off guard. I was so surprised. Like, why would you found such a a big uh, group that cared about the environment and then leave? So upon uh, researching further, I came to the realization that Dr. Patrick Moore had a book out uh, by the title Fake, Invisible, Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, a book that I read. And after that, like I realized I, I, I knew so little about the environment, about climate change, about plastics, about fossil fuels. And uh, since then, uh, after that, actually immediately after that, I came uh, across a guy called Alex Epstein. And since 2020, since the corona period, it has been uh, a mind-changing and learning journey. So here I am, a pro fossil, a pro fossil fuel advocate in Africa. I'd like to di- uh, dive deeper into uh, into all of those aspects. But just before I do, I wanted to set the scene with a, a wee bit of... Um, what your um, what your environment's like where you are and what your life is like uh, for our um, for our audience. Just I've, I was just looking at a few comparisons between Kenya and Britain. Uh, population in Britain sixty seven million. Population in Kenya fifty four million. Um, poverty percentage in Britain zero point five percent. Poverty percentage in Kenya twenty nine point four percent. And we've got um, GDP, um, Britain three three trillion, Kenya one hundred and thirteen billion. Um, we've got uh, GDP per per capita per head of population in Britain fifty four thousand dollars, in Kenya two thousand dollars, and we've got. Um, CO2 emissions, metric tons per person, Britain 4.6, Kenya 0.4. Um, so that, that just sets the scene. So, But, it, but the, the raw figures don't really tell us very much. Could you tell us a little about your immediate environment and, and what, what life is like there? So over here, I, I know mostly because when what the, uh, people in the West see mostly, what they shown by mainstream media is people starving in Africa, uh, deserts, uh, floods, and stuff like that, uh, calamities, natural calamities. And uh, most of it is attributed to climate change. Uh, in Kisi, uh, Kisi is very green. It, it rains throughout the year, apart from uh, during January and bits of February. Uh, th- throughout the year, we have plenty of rain, so we 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 do rain-fed agriculture, like we do farming. Uh, sorry about the cuckoos. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's it. Um, so what uh, the mainstream media shows you is they basically looking for funds. They need money, and uh, of course, they trying to colonize us. It's like uh, colonization, ne- colonization never stopped in Africa, especially what the UN, the World Bank, and IMF is doing. Other than that, uh, Kenya is a great country. The GDP per capita flies a lot because we have uh, a, like a, a tiny percentage of the population who are very rich compared to 
uh, the very poor, like we have very many poor people, especially in the rural areas. Where I come from, uh, people don't make 2,000 pounds or USD per year. They don't. Most people around here, especially small-scale farmers, make around 700, 600 per year. If like if I wanted to do some savings, I'd save about uh, 200 to 300 per year. That's on the extreme end. Uh, but now, uh, because the, uh, the uh, life, like uh, our expenditure has gone up because fertilizer has gone up, uh, fuel has gone up, everything has gone up. People save even little. So that's it. Just a few more questions on this. What do you what do you grow? What what does your farm produce? Okay, personally, we we my family we do tea. Tea is for commercial purposes. Like we sell tea to the tea buying centers and tea factories. They process the tea and sell to the UK and other countries, China, India, stuff like that. Uh, we also do avocados. We do bananas. We do maize, especially and beans. But maize, especially because that's our staple food. Uh, we also do fruits like uh, guavas, um, uh, loquats. I don't know if you know what that is, among others. Oh, and finger millet. You've described the environment you live in. On, on your, um, you have a Substack page, which we'll advertise in, uh, in the notes of this interview. And uh, obviously, you're very um, active on Twitter as well. Um, what comes across in that is, is the huge love and affection you have for your village and for uh, the environment in which you live. And um, you know, that comes a- a- across very strongly. So this is not something you're looking on as entirely bad. This is something that you have love for, but you recognize the, the-, the-, the need for, um, for development. And uh, I was one of the comparisons um, in, uh, in your part of the world, uh, I saw in one of your other interviews, you mentioned about 80% of the people were, were dependent on agriculture. The equivalent figure in Britain is 0.7%. So almost no one's in, in, involved in the agricultural sector in Britain working in other things. And this has been a long process from the, the big transition was the Second World War, where people moved off the land and mechanisation took over. Um, when you're looking at uh, other aspects of, of the economy and how it affects the climate, um, uh, f- uh, fuel and energy is obviously a big part of that. Um, what What's the position regarding the cost of energy, the availability of energy, what sorts of fuels are you using, and, and, and where do you see there being... Um, chances for in, improvement and development in, in, in energy in Kenya? That's like a, a good statistics because in the US, we have only 2% of the population doing agriculture or relying on agriculture for a livelihood. In Europe, generally, it's less than 5%. And in Africa, it's about 60 to 70%. In Kenya, around 80%. So that's a big, big number. And at the end of the day, you realize that we cannot feed ourselves uh, so that's a big problem. I, I, I think in sub-Saharan, so because the energy industry runs every other industry, uh, agriculture, like if we, wa- we want to improve agriculture, if we want to feed ourselves, if we want to beat poverty, we have to improve agriculture. We have to. That's our only way out for now. So how do we improve agriculture? 
by using fossil fuels because farm mechanization, irrigation, and fertilizers, they all rely on fossil fuels in, on, in one way or the other. So uh, back in 1800, and back in 1800 in the US, we had about 3% of the population as farmers, 83%. In Japan, uh, 90%. But today, you see the, the figure is so tiny. It's a small percentage. And that's thanks to uh, farm tractors and stuff like that, like farm machinery. So a good example is uh, a combined harvester. A combined harvester can replace, like a medium combined harvester can replace about 500 to 1,000 people. Uh, we do finger millet farming around here, and that requires a lot of labor, a lot of labor. What a tractor, what a, a, a tractor, for instance, does, like let's say I'm plowing a piece of a piece of land, one hectare, or for uh, okay, let me use one hectare. So for one hectare, if I was using a 55 horsepower uh, tractor to plow, that will take me like maybe at most two hours. But if I wanted to do uh, this, to perform the same task using people, like manually using hose and stuff like that, I'd need uh, about 80 people, uh, and that's a lot of people. That's very many people. So for a tractor, it's one person driving the tractor, and it does the work efficiently, no tiring. For man, if like if you depend on manpower, uh, it, it's quite expensive, uh, and it's not efficient, and it's not quick. So we need lots of uh, fossil fuels, fertilizers, fertilizers and another good example. So we need lots of fertilizers, especially in Africa. Uh, today, uh, in Kenya especially, in Kenya we, have, we use about 20 to 40 kilos of fertilizer per hectare per year annually. If you go to the US, it's 120. If you go to, the, to Europe, to the European nations, it's 150 kilos per hectare per year. And in China, it's 360 kilos per hectare per year. And that's a big, big number. I think that's why we're producing so little. Uh, and it, it, by the way, fertilizers, especially synthetic fertilizers, feed uh, about 50 to 60% of the population, the total world population today. So people who say we don't need fossil fuels, they especially, I, I don't think they know what they are saying. And we don't have a replacement for that. So in the US, uh, in 1920s, one hectare was producing one hectare was producing two tons of corn or maize. Today they're producing eleven tons. In in Kenya today, like in in our farm, we produce around three tons. I know people who do one ton per hectare, and that's so little. That's why we cannot feed ourselves. So we need lots of fertilizers. And in throughout Kenya, because Kenya is is uh, mostly uh, arid and semi-arid. About 80% is arid and semi-arid, ASAL. Uh, we need to find a way to irrigate our lands. I've seen the UN uh, talk about Somalia because Somalia is like a, a good example. And uh, Somalia and Sudan, the two countries. For Somalia, it's so easy to feed uh, people in Somalia. Like we just need to find a way to... Um, so we have the Indian Ocean. We could get water from the Indian Ocean, desalinate it, and then irrigate land. How do we do that? We, in East Africa, in Africa, we have plenty of fossil fuels. We need to tap that so that we can irrigate our lands.
and we have a very big potential. I think about 70% of 75% of uh, arable land left in the world is today in Africa. So we could feed the whole world. What we need is plenty of fossil fuels. Just as a quick aside, um, you talked about the number of the 80 man uh, days it requires to prepare a, a hectare. Um, in the in the pre-mechanised days in, in UK agriculture, that would have been done largely by uh, either horse or ox um, power rather than manpower. And it would be about two and a half days to, to, to prepare that amount. In fact, one of the old measurements of land area in Scotland was called the ox gang. It still crops up on old um, place names and things like this. And an ox gang was the was the area of land that one ox gang could plough in a day, and uh, I think the acre the definition of the acre is quite similar. Uh, is is animal power used in Kenya to any significant degree, or is it all human manpower? So we have a few people, uh, especially, but depends it depends with the region. So we have in like in the western region, people use uh, the og- ox oxen uh, they use the oxen to plow land but in other areas especially now in kisi because we don't have huge land we usually have about a, a half an acre a half and half a hectare that's one acre of land so because like a family a household has got one acre of land uh, there is no need to own an oxen because like you have to feed an oxen and you have to plant you have to say take a third of that land and feed the oxen that are going to plow your land so that will it be that wouldn't be efficient and what about other aspects of of uh power generation it is it is is firewood still a main source and and what's the position with uh, regards to access to electricity so in kenya we are very lucky we have um 80 about 83 percent to 85 percent i think currently uh, of the population being connected to the grid. But at the end of the day, you realize that we use so little electricity. So uh, a good example is my family. We use about 12 to 16 kilowatt hours a month. That translates to about 200 kilowatt hours a year. If you go to the US, people are using uh, 13,000 kilowatt hours a year. We have access to electricity, but we don't have uh, microwaves, we don't have fridges, we don't have uh, laundry machines. So we usually are using our electricity to light our homes and maybe charge our phones and maybe for the people who have got TV and radio, only that. So having access to electricity is, it's a good thing. Like it has brought a lot of change in our village, especially because you can see lights at night. That's a good thing. Uh, and it's even better for families that are that have uh, these younger people, people in school, because now they don't use dirty uh, kerosene stoves for lighting or lamps for lighting. But uh, we need to be rich first. Like imagine, so we need another source of energy, and that's of course going to be fossil fuels because that's how the West developed. Uh, there is no way we're going to run. Uh, power machinery using electricity. The <clears throat> there is no way we're going to build using uh, electricity. We have to use fossil fuels, transportation, fossil fuels. Uh, lots of stuff is fossil fuel. 
so yeah we need access to energy and and talking about firewood in my village uh, about i'd say about 99% 98% of the population in my village now uh cook using firewood in other places people use cow dung they mix cow dung and uh, charcoal waste and then they they dry it and then they use that as a cooking uh source of energy in sub-saharan africa in sub-saharan africa now uh, in general we have uh, uh, almost 90% of our total energy consumption coming from firewood like we're getting our let, let me refer to that as biomass not firewood because biomass now is a general term so we're getting almost 90% of our total energy consumption from burning biomass and that's not a good thing because that means that we cannot uh, power uh, industries or machines using firewood electricity just a tiny tiny uh, in, uh, consumption or percentage i was uh, reading a little while ago about the impact that that uh, the the very positive impact that certain technologies have had in africa um one that was described to me was the mobile phone. Maybe if you can confirm whether this is accurate or not. But the, the use of a mobile phone, because it didn't require the same built infrastructure as, say, Europe has with the with a hardwired landline phone system, that could be largely missed out. That put communication quickly uh, all across rural Africa where the the infrastructure costs would have been prohibitive otherwise and also picked up other benefits such as payment systems secure payment systems in areas which were um, more uh, exposed to to theft and robbery and banditry um, and this was a this was a an item that had kind of propelled um, forwards uh, commerce now so firstly I would ask is is that accurate? Uh, and could you also maybe outline some other technologies that have been particularly helpful uh, to uh, to your part of Africa? Uh, that's mostly accurate. Uh, one other technology I'd like to uh, give a shout out to is motorcycles. In my village, people who uh, even people who have gone to university and they don't have they lack they lack employment or they are not employed because that's very common in Africa. Unemployment is very common. So people like that, they go and have access, they have access to a motorbike. Like you can get a motorbike at a very cheap price. So you're given like a, uh, a motorbike at a very small fee, and then it's, it's basically a loan. So you're going to pay for it uh, at the end of the week or at the end of the month. Um, and in two years time, you have completed that. But the like that has transformed our economies in a very big way like if you came to my village i know very many people very many youths who are employed by the motors motorcycle industry in kenya today i think about two million people out of the 54 million people we have two million people employed by the motorcycle industry and it's blooming it has like changed because so back in before the motorcycle industry like uh exploded Back in 2020, like growing up, generally, I was carrying Napier grass on my head. Growing up from age 10 upwards, I think, to about age 22. So I was carrying Napier grass on my head for two kilometers. Uh, we were harvesting maize about two kilometers away, and we had to carry that using on our heads. 
So that was a lot of work. Going to town, uh, we had to walk. So carrying water, for instance, when we have a drought in January and Feb, we had to to carry water on our heads. So we have a few people now. More people can have access to the motorbikes and they can use them to transport stuff. They have transformed our economies. This is uh, very interesting. Um, I, I would like to kind of also just touch on uh, some of the other aspects that, that we probably take for granted in, in places like the UK. Um, one of them is the benefits of refrigeration, again, depending on electricity, and all, also the general preservation of food and avoiding waste. Uh, in the environment you're working in, um, is is that a problem now? And, and and if so, how do you get how do you get around the risk of 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 food not being used but actually being wasted? Um, if uh, you don't have what we would have in the UK, which is a lot of refrigeration, a lot of plastic wrapping to keep things fresh, all of that type of um, sort of protection of food. I think about ten percent of your electricity consumption in the West, especially. 10% of your electricity consumption goes to the a refrigerator. And uh, I'm, I'm just remembering one thing Alex Epstein usually says. So in the US, for instance, uh, a person per capita, you, your refrigerator uses around 500 kilowatt hours per year. And I, as I said earlier, uh, around here, we use about 200 kilowatt hours per year. So your refrigerator uses more electricity compared to Jasper and like my whole family. <laughs> it's crazy. So over here, we have to cook. Like you cook what you're going to eat. Uh, and like you don't, we, we, we don't want to waste our food. So like if I wanted to cook for my family, I'm going to cook food for six people. And that's just it. Because the moment I cook more food, like if uh, I have more milk, that's going to waste. So that's what happens around here, especially, okay, so we have a few seasons uh, when we have plenty of avocados and most of them, they end up rotting on the ground. Like we have plenty of avocados or in particular seasons. So other times we have plenty of rain. So after, 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 after the drought, the February, January, February drought, we usually people, people, every person is planting vegetables. And now a month later, Everybody has got plenty of vegetables around. Most of that ends up protein in our farms. And uh, I like I recognize uh, the impact of, say, a refrigerator. So in, in, in my village, we have about, I, I think, less than 1% of my village people with access to a refrigerator. And that's just sad. Yeah, it makes a big difference in a hot, in a hot climate. It, it really does. Um, so um, you might be interested to know that we grow tea too in Scotland. It's very expensive Scottish tea, but it is actually it can actually grow in our climate. So it's a remarkable plant, and obviously very popular in Britain. Um, I, I'd like to move on now to the uh, your stance against the. Uh, the, the climate change orthodoxy and uh, you move away from uh, Greenpeace as it currently is is configured. Uh, Patrick Moore, for example, uh, you mentioned the former uh, founder of Greenpeace. Uh, I've interviewed him and he's also been in other um, 
uh, other pieces of work that uh, are available on the UK column website. So we're 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 very familiar with with his um, with his work, and he's he's very um, heartfelt um, uh, addressing of the changes that have affected the environmental movement and how it's gone away from being in favour of preserving life and preserving to the environment to this. Um, very destructive tendency where it's always seeking to stop and prevent and reduce and destroy in many in many regards. Um, you've obviously seen this and you've you've stood up against it. Um, what sort of response have you got? Uh, first of all, in Kenya and in your in your local area, to what you've been saying, does, does, does this resonate with people? So most people around here don't care about climate change. They don't, they, most of uh, the people in my, most of the people in my village especially don't know what climate change is because of course we have far bigger problems. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's very, that's like very common in Kenya. Most people don't care about climate change, I, but they have heard about climate change because the West is like running our government they are running our main our media so media around media in kenya and i i guess that is happening throughout africa media in kenya are talking about like they have shows for climate change environmental let's talk about climate change or the environment and even in news that's happening so recently there was the african climate summit it happened in Kenya and people have been, have been talking about it. The other day I went, I visited another big town in Kenya called, called Nakuru and there was a big poster, a billboard talking about the, uh, the African climate summit. So that has been happening, but people of course don't care about that because there are far bigger problems. People are worried about what they're going to eat at night and tomorrow, how they're going to school their kids. Uh, how they're going to beat poverty, how they're going to build houses. People want to develop. People don't care about climate change. Yeah, so I, 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 was, I was looking here, the, Afri the Africa section of the United Nations is, is saying this about, uh, about the situation. Climate change destroys the livelihoods of Kenyan pastoralists. Amid acute and persistent drought, pastoral pastoralists in northern Kenya, that's the arid part of the country, and other arid regions of Africa are in dire straits and hinge hope on potential compensation for loss and damage. So here we've got the UN pushing the a very a very strange kind of dependency culture, not not development, but receiving handouts from the from the West and, and some sort of victim mentality. Um it, it, is that how you perceive it? I mean, how do you how do you see the UN and Western uh, influence in this, and uh, how do you think it's affecting uh, your society, your country? So the northern part of Kenya has been experiencing drought and famine for very many years. There is a research, uh, I think, by a, a, a PhD student in Nairobi University. I, I think the research is from. The paper was written in 18, 18, around 1880 or 1890, sorry, 1990. So the paper talks about droughts happening because there are records. We had a, 
white people in Kenya back then in 1890s, 1900, the start of 19, the 19th century, 18th century, I think. So anyway, back in 1890s and 1870s, 1880 and 1890, we had people in Turkana, the Turkana now, the people, the, the tribe now, the uh, Turkana tribe, they were selling their kids to, in exchange for food back in 1890s. So today, I, I don't think that's happening, but we have people dying, of course. And uh, also, if you look at the statistics, uh, the, the number of livestock in Turukana and in the no no northern part of Kenya has been going up, the number of livestock. So that means that uh, the Turukana region is a bit better. It's doing far better. And they could do even more better with access to fossil fuels. So fossil fuels would help the Trukana people to drill boreholes or desalinate water because we have like, like Trukana up there. And like we have solutions. I don't know why the UN keeps on glorifying uh, droughts and famines in Africa, but that I guess that's what makes them uh, see them as saviors, the Jesus in Africa. In reality, these people, the UN actually is doing much more harm to us than the good. So the UN, right now, the UN is preaching sustainable development goals, the SDGs, the 17 SDGs, whereby climate change is one of the uh, sustainable development goals. And the rest, the 16 sustainable development goals, they are, are all centered around climate change. So like if you want to beat poverty, how do we beat poverty uh, keeping climate change at the middle, at the center of the conversation. So if you want to uh, have more people educated, if you want to beat malnutrition, everything is just centered around climate change. But climate change is not, it's just a hoax. It's, it's an excuse. The UN just wants us to uh, keep on depending on them, on mostly the Western nations. I think the Western governments are very corrupt uh, and they don't want us to develop because once we develop, it means that there, there's going to be a scramble for resources, especially uh, fertilizer, because Africa's got, I, I think, about 90% in Morocco. Morocco has got about 90% of the phosphate rock in the world today. So they wouldn't want that. We have plenty of uh, natural gas. We have plenty of oil, plenty of gas, plenty of coal, plenty of everything, plenty of uh, gold, uh, cro uh, chromium, etc etc so they wouldn't want us to develop yeah so this is very this is very critical because you mentioned colonization but I, I think it's actually many ways worse than that uh one of the people we've interviewed in the past uh on the uk comms a chap called alison mccloud who uh, who is in uh the basically gold trading and banking services uh area and he speaks on Ma you know, economic matters from a largely Austrian school perspective. Um, he was born in Kenya um, at, the, at, at the tail end of, of the colonial period. And you speak to him about it, and it's, it's very clear that he, he has extremely fond memories and, and a direct attachment with the place and uh, uh, wishes it well. Um, in the colonial era, era you had people coming from Britain and farming and living and and 
developing Kenya. I think what we've got now is 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 actually much worse because you get people flying in, um, telling Kenyans not to develop, telling Kenyans to leave the resources in the ground, and flying out again. And they, they don't carry any responsibility. The responsibility for the poverty is then left with, with the Kenyans. There's no colonial power that's been looked on to say, well, you've got to do something about this country. You, you're, you're managing it badly. Look at the people. No, there was at least some level, tenuous maybe, but of accountability. Now the UN flies in, um, the World Bank comes in um, with its economic development plans and its debt levels. And this doesn't seem to be in in the best interest of the Kenyans. But the problems are all left at the at the door of the Kenyans. I, I think it's a, a, actually a worse system than colonialism, uh, personally. Um, the idea that the root of the root of development and advancement that we followed in the West, right, through you know various forms of power. Um, coal, oil, and, uh, and, and and other forms shouldn't be available to a country like Kenya seems to be bizarre. And like the way that the phone system um, in a, it was rolled out in Africa, essentially straight to the mobile phone for a lot of Africa, and missed out the earlier technology, and, and leapt ahead or leapt to catch up, should be available to, to the countries in Africa without this strange constraint of um, you know, this kind of anti-development, anti-growth mentality uh, that seems to be coming, be, being imposed upon you. Uh, what is the, what's the local political reaction? What, how, do the, how does the, the government and the, 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 the political leadership in Kenya respond to this? Do they see this as a threat? Do they say, no, 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 we want to develop, we want to get on? Or are they influenced uh, by, by the, the, the propaganda that comes out of the climate change uh, belief system? So the UN, uh, the UN, World Bank and IMF are some of the worst organizations to be in Africa today. And I think the WEF is gaining traction and it's climbing up the ladder. It's going to be at the top in a few years uh, because people are listening to it and the UN is uh, like advertising it. So talking about the UN, uh, back in 2005, the UN, uh, they, ha they had like a newspaper called, I think, the Something Magazine. Um, I can't remember the other the other name. So they wrote a piece benef titled "The Benefits of uh, World Hunger," and like it was a whole a lengthy piece talking about why world hunger is benefiting the West, especially because they were asking the author was asking if everybody if everybody was rich as the West, who is going to uh, um, mow our lawns, who is going to mow our lawns, who is going to clean our toilets, who is going to do our kitchen gardens. So I wouldn't trust such an organization to have Africans in their best interest. Like, I wouldn't. Yeah, so World Bank, World Bank and IMF recently, I think last month, they were cheering our government because, okay, so at first they told our government, we want to give you a loan, but you have to uh 
try like you have to do something about uh you being green like the green policies something related to the green policies so our government said okay what we're going to do is we're going to end fertilizer subsidies and fuel subsidies so after the government did that the un and uh, the world bank and imf was chairing the government and then they gave they gave now our, our government alone so in in some way our government is being pushed to the wall like you have to uh push the green policies to your people otherwise we won't help you and we don't have much uh op- we don't have that many options our options are limited so i think one of the our president the president of kenya william ruto <clears throat> um I, i i i like him but because like he's very educated but i also dislike him or or hate him because he glorifies climate change like he's talking about climate change he's being invited to big big climate summits happening in France or um, the US in like we had the African climate summit in Kenya imagine that not any other country in Africa but Kenya so he's like at the top in Africa I think he's one of the number one presidents talking about climate change or thinking that climate change is a problem in Africa i think is getting good money for pushing the climate narrative to us uh and to other african countries so yeah i i don't like that yes yes we 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 don't trust the world bank and the imf either they're they're not they're not good news from any part of the globe the the anti development line in the west is playing out somewhat differently it's been used to destroy industries uh, we've got politicians posing and smiling in front of the press as they demolish power stations and and close down productive parts of the economy it's a horrible sight to behold and um they come they they suggest that they're being so virtuous by doing this and the 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 core problem of um uh of the need for affordable energy as being one of the core drivers of the economy and in a cold northern climate like like britain of life because it's it's the winter season that's the it's the threat to life here it's not heat it's cold uh that tends to that tends to cause uh you know much higher death rates and we're seeing this uh constant push against development um and then we're given some sorts of technologies which get the stamp of approval um one of them is obviously electric and electric battery vehicles now we're aware that some of the conditions in african mines with child labor that is that is generating the lithium and the uh, and the other the other rare metals uh for the batteries cobalt and such th- such things uh are are pretty horrendous and um if you look at the environmental impact of this technology it's by no means clear that it's a that's an improvement on the current level of technology with fossil fuels by no means clear this is all based on the co2 is a killer the co2 is causing runaway warming myth um this is the driver for everything and this is the 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 mantra that that cannot be challenged 
uh, in politics, certainly in Britain, there's there's no one really pushing against this. Um, you you talked about the the influence of of the World Bank and the IMF, which is certainly toxic. Um, in terms of the economy and banking and 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 money in Kenya, do you have um, a, a local banking infrastructure? A local um, what what is the local currency? How how stable is all of that? And is there a is there an alternative locally to um, depending wholly on this um, centrally controlled, top-down, supranational body investment? It, it, you know, can you attract inward investment from private sources and can you generate savings and investment within Kenya? Let me talk about uh, heat-related and cold-related deaths. As you said, uh, even in Africa, because we are around the equator, um, the tropi tropical regions. So even in Africa, we have farm, like, okay, we have 1.2 million people dying annually uh, from extreme cold compared to 26,000 people dying from extreme heat. That's a big, big difference. So yeah, heat is uh, is not the problem, cold is. And I I don't know why people keep on talking about, oh, the world is like heating up. I don't see any bad with the world heating up because even crops, crops want, uh, they, they do better in a warm environment. A good example is comparing Molo in the Rift Valley and in Kisi where I, we live currently. So in Molo, we, we when we plant maize, uh, after we harvest the maize after nine to 10 months. In Kisi, we usually harvest maize after uh, six months, around six months, because the place is warm. So yeah, heat is not bad, cold is. Talking about uh, our banks, so we have the Kenyan shilling as our uh, currency, national currency. But today we have people trying to invest in USD, like they want to deal with USD, USD the, uh, the United States dollar, because it's not as volatile as the Kenyan shilling today. Uh, like the dollar is stable. So we have local banks around, uh, we have Kenyan Commercial Bank, uh, Equity. Uh, we have even, there is one from the US. Um, we have Stanbeek. There is another one from the UK. Um, so we, I, I can't remember the name, but we have um, local banks around. If somebody wanted to invest in, in Kenya, uh, they, they, they could uh, comfortably actually. Uh, you just have to have the right papers and know the right people. You would want to do everything in a professional way. Like you wouldn't want to, to pass through the shortcuts because at the end of the day, they're going to bite you. So yeah, one could invest in Kenya comfortably. And is there much inward investment? Are you seeing that having a positive effect or is it quite rare? It depends with the, the type of investment. So we have... People from India, we have Indians in Kenya uh, who have invested so much in horticulture. Horticulture, they growing especially roses and cutting uh, the the flowers and exporting to European to the European market, the UK, uh, Germany, Belgium, stuff like that. At the end of the day, you realize that okay, people 
benefit from working those greenhouses but the benefits because i've i've interned in one of the uh farms i wouldn't refer to that as helping us because at the end of the day like if you're working in a greenhouse it's very hot and we have like they apply lots of chemicals to grow those uh flowers everything like every day they fertilize the uh the flowers every day the roses every day and that means there's plenty of chemicals so they have to spray uh pesticides i think in after every three days uh fungicides maybe after every three days at the end of the day that's not uh and the people working in those greenhouses let's say spraying the chemicals don't have protective gear that's not good for their health and these people some of them are very resist i'd say like they hate africans so they don't treat us as equals they just here for money like if they making good money out of it that's just it they might be generating like 1 billion kenyan shillings a day that's about uh 10000 100000 uh that's about 10 it's a lot of money so let's say they making like 1 million 1 million a day uh 1 million a day that's about 10000 usd or maybe 7000 pounds a day at the end of the day uh using even 1% of that money they want it to be 0.5 they want it to be even less like they want all the profits for themselves but we have a few other people who are nice like they have done investment in Kenya and they treat us as equals but that's like a, a tiny percent people are out here and they all they all about business how much are we making uh the capitalism uh the capitalist way yes the 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 inward the, there can be problems with inward investment but the the idea that um there's a potential industry for growing agricultural produce and you mentioned flowers there exporting it to europe is obviously a a a, a potential for international division of labor and 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 um a means of developing uh kenyan industry and commerce now that also is going to be under attack because the transport uh infrastructure is under attack by the global warming agenda it's looking to essentially end by 2050 uh all um sea transport that's based on fossil fuels and this is going to make sea transport much more expensive um and it's going to mean that that the crops that have to go uh quickly to market um perhaps by air they they may not be able to make it to the market at all and this will undermine that development and undermine that investment and this is another area where um the central planning is is pushing down on countries that are trying to that are trying to develop and this seems to me to be the very opposite of what we should be doing um it's uh certainly the case that um the uh some of the working conditions in an early point in in an industrial development will be will be very poor um the these tend to in, improve as the economy develops because there's competition for for 
staff and competition for workers and this drives up uh, this drives up the standards uh, enormously um, and holding that back means that the exploitation the poor working conditions um, they tend to persist longer I think than they would otherwise do which is very worrying um, I Jasper, we've covered a, a huge amount of ground. I want to thank you very much for your time today. It's been it's been fascinating uh, listening to you. Um, would you like to uh, to to close off with a few final thoughts on on what you would like to to see um, happening to to your community and uh, what you what uh, interference that's coming in to Kenya you would like to see. Uh, cease. I would want my government, be it Kenya, be it throughout Africa, because we are one nation. So I would want the UN, uh, the World Bank, the IMF to stop uh, the neocolonialism that they're running in Africa in the name of degrowth, or actually they 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 using climate change as a scapegoat, but in reality, they're all talking about degrowth or depopulation. And of course, it's going to start from Africa because they are saying too much of them, just about enough of us. That's their mantra. So anyway, I will want those organizations to leave Africa alone. Like we're going to develop eventually because we are chasing to beat poverty. We want to beat hunger. We want to be educated, we want to be unemployment, we want to improve agriculture, we want to have industries, we don't want to sell raw uh, goods, we want to uh, value to add value to our goods before exporting because, as you said, the exports market has got, like it pays very well, up to five times compared to selling produce locally. Uh, I would want my government, especially my, my president, uh, to leave alone climate change because that's not a problem to Kenyans. You should ask around. People don't care about climate change. They want to live a better life. They want their, their life standards improved. Uh, we need lots of energy because we're consuming so little fossil fuels. Uh, 1.4 billion people consuming 3.2 nine to four million barrels of oil per day compared to 20 million uh, barrels of oil per day in the U.S. by 330 million people. And those people are telling us that we need to stop using fossil fuels. We actually don't even use fossil fuels. We barely use fossil fuels, and we have plenty of that. Solar and wind isn't going to do it. It's unreliable, uh, intermittent, parasitic, and it's mostly electricity. We don't need much electricity. And we have hydro, we have uh, geothermal, and we have plenty of fossil fuels. So we don't even need a loan from uh, the Western nations. We just want investors in, in Africa. We want the investors to invest in drilling oil, uh, tapping natural gas, getting coal, extracting coal, and we're going to pay you back. Of course, it's, it's a, a very expensive commodity. And once you invest in Africa, in oil, gas, and coal, you're going to get your money back. Unlike us relying on solar and wind, which 
is basically us getting a loan from World Bank or the UN, the World Bank and the IMF. And eventually you realize that it, it's a debt trap. So fossil fuels for Africa. Uh, Jasper, thank you very much. Fossil fuels for Africa. And it's nice to finish on a point where uh, the view from uh, Chile, Scotland and the view from equatorial East Africa uh, both say the same thing, which is leave us alone. Uh, Jasper, until next time, thank you very much.